This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with product designer Nicholas Nzuki, I asked him what's the best advice he's been given about design. Match the fidelity of your prototype to the fidelity of your question. And what that means is that if you're addressing a very big question and you have a lot of unknowns, it's okay to design something really rough um, and put it out there just to get broad answers from people. Um, but if you're further along in a project and your questions are more refined, then you should go out there with a prototype or a design that's very high fidelity um, and get people to focus on the small details that are going to make or break the final product. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, you may have noticed that our episodes are now included on Glitch.com. Of course, you all know Glitch has been a sponsor for the past year. Now we are going to be part of their new media network. So moving forward, you'll be able to find our episodes there. We'll have a full announcement in the coming weeks with more information. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Google Design and MailChimp. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out just doing email, but now you can use it for all sorts of marketing things. You can use it for Facebook ads. You can use them for Instagram ads. There's powerful automations and a whole lot more. You can really kind of think of MailChimp now more as like a marketing powerhouse for your business. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to designer, developer, and event organizer, Carl Hudson Phillips. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Carl Hudson Phillips. If I'm taking the role of a designer, I would say I help organizations establish modern standards-based web presence so that they can effectively communicate what they consider to be important connect with their audience and increase their return on investment. If I'm wearing the event or community organizer hat, I would say that I create and host events for creative professionals who might seek to improve their craft, learn cutting edge trends and become more effective for their companies, their clients, their stakeholders, and become better overall. Okay. And I certainly want to go into the event organizing part because that's how you and I initially met. But let's touch on the designer part first. What's a typical day like for you? Because you have your own your own company, Harbormark. Is that right? So Harbormark is actually, I'm in the process of splitting Harbormark, where okay. Harbormark would only deal with events. Oh. Nothing more. Or I would say events and education that's focused on providing tech for all. Design, I'm splitting that off right now with another member of the Revision Path community where we would do specific design and website development for nonprofit organizations, mission-driven organizations, change makers. Oh, okay. With someone from Revision Path. Yes, sir. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, you'll have to let me know when that all uh, when that all goes through, unless you want to give an exclusive right now in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're still getting our ducks in a row, so um, I figure probably in about two to three weeks, 
we should be able to rule everything out. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely let me know about that. Uh, certainly by the time this episode airs, it'll be news and we'll make sure to include it with that. Yeah. What's a typical day like for you now? A typical day is a mix of doing web design, client meetings, calls, and then on the flip side, making notes, looking at um, how we could do an event better, how we could be more inclusive, how we could enhance the attendee experience, how we could en- enhance the speaker experience, and then to how we could get financial support because you know sponsorship is a huge problem for um, events or, or like in your case, a podcast when you're starting out. Even for, for some that have been doing this for a long time, being able to get financial support is hard. Yeah. So that's what my days look like. Yeah, I don't know if many people realize that, I guess, I mean, with events, I think it's more of a, a thing that people can see because you have to rent a venue, you've got to put up for insurance, and there's a mm-hmm. lot more, I think, that goes into it. I can tell you from the podcast side, people think this is like pennies. Like, <laughs> I guess because they're listening for free, they feel like, yeah. oh, you're not you're not really putting anything into it. Like, I'm not talking into a $400 mic, going into mm-hmm. a $100 filter, going into a $150 preamp, and have to pay for hosting and marketing and all this kind of stuff, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm sure at every level you move up or you, 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 get, you get a little bit further in the reach of the podcast, then there's something else to think about. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm actually at that point now. Well, I think I, probably by the time this airs, part of that will uh, will have come to fruition. But yeah, that that's something that I have to think about as I upgrade. Like, what concessions do I need to make in order to still maintain the quality that I have, but also to like up my game? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally understand that. Before we get into the events, though, more again about you as a as a designer. When did you first have that sort of aha moment where you knew that this was what you wanted to do for a living? Like, when did you get that interest in design? I think it was it was back in... So I migrated from Trinidad to Bago to play soccer for Charleston Southern University. And when I got to CSU, I started taking more and more computer classes because I just it just seemed easy to me. So I was programming... I remember we were doing COBOL and SQL and all that kind of stuff. And I just loved it. But it was probably about 99 that one of my friends told me, if you're spending so much time in code, you need to take a look at HTML. Mm. So spend some time reading through those, what, HTML in 24 hours (laughs) and and playing around with stuff. And, you know, that just kind of escalated from one thing to the other. So even while I was at University of South Carolina, I was there to do business, but I was still doing the the MBA user, the MBA attendee committee website and just starting to do website design and mm-hmm. just loving it. And then seeing people use the tools I created, I think made me feel like I was doing something worthwhile. Nice. So you really kind of like cut your teeth in school with, with learning all this. Yeah. And then um, when I graduated, it was right after 9-11. Mm. And it was hard to get a job. It was the corporate path that I had in mind for myself just wasn't working out. It just happened by chance that someone working at NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they were having a hard time trying to figure out how to get some data online. So someone suggested, you know, why not just ask Carl to look at it? So I dropped by one day, didn't realize it was an interview. Oh. And, and we were sitting in a conference room with a dry erase, with dry erase boards all around. And while we were discussing, you know, the data, and they had all these spreadsheets and all this you know, scientific data and all that kind of stuff. And they're trying to get it online. It took me a while to connect the dots. But then since we, were, we had dry erase boards, I got up and I started illustrating and trying to explain to them, okay, this is what needs to be done. You probably want to consider this. You probably want to consider that. The person you, you get needs to be able to do this, 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 this. Not too long after, the most senior person in the room said, well, why don't you just take the job? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, well... 
Unfortunately, I'm not a U.S. national. So if you're looking to hire me, you would actually need to sponsor an H-1B visa. Mm-hmm. He said, no problem. Oh, well, there you go. And I thought, well, yeah, let's do this. Not even knowing how much money I was going to make or anything, because I was a month from packing up to go back to Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, wow. So over the course of 12 years, I spent a lot of time doing SQL Server development, ESP.net, front-end web design. I mean, everything. If they wanted me to to drive a truck, I was driving that truck. <laughs> but but there, I spent a lot of time playing a lot of different roles, um, primarily as a SQL developer, then getting certified as a database administrator, getting my project management professional certification. Wow. And still dabbling around with web design, but being fortunate enough to be able to go to conferences like Events Apart and so many others and just coming back to Charleston and thinking, man, I feel energized. Mm-hmm. I feel like I could conquer the world, but then, you know, that feeling wears off after a while. Yeah. So when you went to these different conferences and you were kind of picking up all this information, is that what inspired you to then start community there in Charleston? Yes and no. At first, I wasn't really paying attention to the lack of diversity because that was what I I was used to. And I'll explain. When I grew up in Trinidad, I was not in a situation of being in a minority. When I came to the U.S., my first introduction to this culture was, you know, me being on the soccer team. There are three black guys from the Caribbean and everyone else on a 24-man roster was white. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was just what we got used to. And even at that time when you know, in class and in a lot of different things, Blacks were always in the minority. But I think because we were socialized in a different way when we were growing up, it was just normal for us. Even at the master's level, when I was doing my MBA at the University of South Carolina, I was one out of the only Black guy out of 85 students. There were two Black women, but that was it. That was normal for me. Mm. So even while going to the events and everything, I was just there to focus on how could I improve my craft? What do I not know? How could I make connections? It was only when I started going up to Silver Spring to work for a week that things changed a little bit. Because when I, I would leave Charleston and then I would go to DC, the D.C. area to work for a week or so. And every evening there was a meetup. There was something to go to. And I could just bounce around and attend so many events. And I was amazed at how much information was available and the, the networking, the connections that were made. Then I'd come back to Charleston and everything was just silent. Mm. And I couldn't understand why, why a city like Charleston that they're saying was growing, that they're saying was one of the top cities to visit, didn't have an active developer or creative community. At one point, I was attending an event called Bar Camp here in Charleston. And the event I wanted to, the session I wanted to attend, the speaker didn't show up. So reluctantly, I walked into the WordPress session. And it was packed wall to wall. That was my first introduction to WordPress. Mm-hmm. And I was looking around the room and I was amazed at how many people were in there and how you know the discussions were going, how interested people were, were and the questions they were asking. And I remember asking a question, is there a meetup group? And everybody kind of looked, well, well, well no. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. How could there not be a user group here in Charleston? <laughs> so thinking, well, okay, what I'll do is I'll try to facilitate it. I registered a domain. I created a Twitter account. And as I learned, read, learned, and got better at WordPress, I would share stuff online through Twitter. And I set up this landing page for if you're interested in the user group, sign up, and we'll let you know. That was back in 2010. 
And over the next coming months, people would send messages or they would respond to our tweet and say, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for this to get started. But over time, the, t- the tone of the messages changed from encouragement and excitement to something more al- along the lines of, is this thing ever going to get started? Mm-hmm. Who's, do- who's running this? <laughs> so somewhere along the line, I realized, okay, I need to start doing something. But I had no experience doing events or anything like that. So what I started doing, first of all, was reading up about meetup groups. What works? What doesn't work? Why do some succeed? Why do some fail? I started going around to other meetup groups around town. And, you know, it was like five people, four people. I think the largest one I went to had nine people. So that's what I thought was normal for Charleston. We arranged the first one. First, uh, November 18, 2011. And I say we, it was really me. Mm-hmm. And one of the local companies donated some space to use, decided they would buy pizza. And I was hoping for probably, you know, if, if we could have 12 people, it would be great. We'd have the biggest meetup group ever in Charleston that I knew about. <laughs> <laughs> but 35 people showed up. Oh, wow. And, I mean, I was beyond ecstatic. I just didn't know what was going on. Anyway, we had a really good set. We had a really good meetup. Everything went well. And, you know, at the end, I'm thanking the speaker and thinking, right, this was great. Then somebody asked, when is the next one? Mm. And I thought, well, I'm just here to facilitate it until somebody comes along to lead it. That mm. led to another month having another meetup. And going on from there, and me all along thinking that someone is going to come along and take this thing over so I could actually just attend, but that never happened. And over time, I started figuring, you know, you try one thing, it doesn't work. You try another thing, it doesn't work. You try something, it works. So you start figuring out the model. Yeah. During the course of that year, I realized there were some topics that didn't really focus on WordPress. They were more along the, the idea of design. That's how Refresh Charleston came up. And all along, I was just trying to ride on the coattails of something that existed already. So I didn't have to work on the brand and a lot of different aspects. But it was the first meetup or the first event, the Refresh Charleston event, which was probably about 90 minutes with two speakers. Mm-hmm. That was September 11, 2012. One of the speakers pulled me aside during the event and I asked, um, how are you paying for this? So I said, well, you know, I try to reach out to companies every month and to see if they would sponsor. If they don't sponsor, well, I just pay for it. She said, and everybody attended for free? I said, yeah. She said, start charging money. I said, no, no, this isn't really supposed to make money. It's just a matter of getting people in here. She said, start charging money. Yeah. And she said, from her experience, when you charge money, people subconsciously attach value mm-hmm. to it. And, you know, looking back now, it's funny to think how incredibly scared I was to charge $6. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it for the next meetup, and the attendance rose to about 65 it was still hard for me to understand how is this even possible? I'm giving this away for free and 30 people show up, but we start charging money and more people show up. And over time I started realizing when you leave home in the morning and you tell yourself, you're probably going to check out a meetup in the afternoon. When you hit that two o'clock two thirty slump and you start looking at what's left for the day, if you're not subscribed or if you didn't pay for something, it's easy for you to blow it off. By contrast, if you pay $6, $10, whatever, when you leave home in the morning, your mindset is different. Mm -hmm. So even if you feel that slump in the afternoon, you know this is what's happening later in the day. So you will drink coffee. You'll do what is necessary to make sure you can attend. So when I realized that, the WordPress user group was no longer free to attend. It was now $6. Mm-hmm. And it freed up. It made it a lot easier to manage because then now uh, I no longer had to hustle companies. 
I could look at the list of attendees at 1 p.m. that day before the event and make a decision on how I was going to handle refreshments. Mm-hmm. And the quality of refreshments changed from pizza and beer to chicken nuggets, vegetable trees. <laughs> I mean, it, it changed. And it was interesting seeing the mindset of the attendee change as well because people realized if the meetup starts at 6 o'clock, they need to get there at 5.30, to get the grab, a plate, grab yeah. a plate, grab a seat, and if you didn't do that, you were going to be standing for the whole meetup. Mm. So that's kind of how things kind of started and evolved over time. So there's a lot in here that you just mentioned that I want to unpack. Some of it I'll get to later, but I think specifically the part I want to talk about is about funding, is about how people are attaching value to the money that you're charging for these events. And when that happened, that actually increased the attendees. And I think sometimes for designers, Pricing can always be a bit of a a tricky issue, whether you're pricing for a website or you're pricing for an event, like what you're doing. You feel like you might turn people off by charging them for money. And I mean, you probably will. I mean, let's just be honest. We live in a capitalist society. But it's good that people are attaching that value to it. And because of that, you're also improving what it is that you're putting out. Like when you said the food went up, and that made me think, like, there are so many things that I know that I have paid tickets for. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go the day up. But then I'm thinking, well, I can't get this this $15 back. So let me just go. Or right. you know? <laughs> like I already paid the money for it. Let me just go ahead and go. Or if I know that there's going to be, you know, refreshments or something served and it's not like cheese puffs or whatever, then, yeah, right. you want to get there early. Because also then that kind of word of mouth travels. I mean, it's almost like <laughs> when you're in college and you just show up to like random events and stuff because you know that they've got a good spread. Well, maybe that was just yep. my college experience, but no, no, was, I was, I was, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> there is stuff that I would definitely show up to with Tupperware in my in my backpack. Like, yeah, oh, I'm so interested in this topic, and I'm just shoveling food. Not to say that you know, just showed up for the food. Although it's college, I probably did, but it, it kind of shows that because that is part of the offering. That that is also what's driving people out. And so maybe people will check it out. Maybe they're like, oh, this has opened my mind a little bit. Or they're just coming out for the food. Either way, you got people coming out. Yep. Yeah. You said Refresh started in 2011? Refresh Charleston? Yeah. 2012. Refresh began in 2011. Refresh began in 2012. So you started with the the WordPress user group and then it went to Refresh. Mm -hmm. When did you get to where you are now? Because now you are the program chair for two other conferences that you've created, SyntaxCon and Revolve Conference, which just wrapped up back in November. Right. So, I mean, all along, I was doing it, but I wasn't owning it. Mm-hmm. I still kept thinking, you know, okay, you know, someone's going to come along and take this over. I have, I'm not trained as an event professional. I'm just figuring it out as I go. But it was someone overhearing someone speak about me and what I was doing made me start thinking, well, I guess I am an event organizer. So that's what people think I am. They don't realize the mistakes I'm making. So I guess I'll just continue to pretend. Somewhere in 2013, after becoming more active in the WordPress community, I got the wild idea that we should host a WordCamp, which if someone isn't familiar with a WordCamp, it's a, a one, one or two day WordPress conference that is completely volunteer organized and is put on basically by different user groups under the umbrella of the WordPress Foundation. And I submitted an application probably around this time of year, just got a wild idea, submitted it one evening, got a call the following day, totally unexpected. We had probably about 45-minute conversation, and she told me I was approved. Mm. Then the alarm started because then I started thinking, okay, what did I just do? I had to pull together a team and figure stuff out. But while doing that, the WordPress Foundation had this playbook of lessons learned 
on how to put together a WordCamp. So while I'm going through this, over six months while we we're planning everything, I'm going through it and thinking, well, I could probably do this better. Or I wouldn't do it this way. Or this is a really good idea. I would never have thought about that. So while doing that and putting it together and trying to lead, you know, lead the organizing group, we got to the point where we hosted that. That was the first word camp in South Carolina, as a matter of fact. That was May 2014. And we sold out. We had to stop selling tickets at 250 because then we started realizing we didn't really think about how many tickets we could actually sell. But the classrooms and the venue could only hold so many people during a session. So, you know, I did that really well, learned a lot from that. And it was at that point I decided, okay, what I could probably do, what, it's time for me to step back and let someone else lead. Because if I was involved, nobody else was going to step up. So mm-hmm. later that year, I, I stepped back. But I also thought, okay, over the past few years, I've been attending other conferences. But that's when I noticed it was usually what we refer to as the usual suspects, white males. And they probably have one or two women on the lineup. And I kept thinking, yeah, this really isn't reflective of the industry. Mm-hmm. So we need to try and change that if we we're going to try to do something. So I decided, okay, what I'll do is I'll take what I've learned and try to apply it to something different. And the first revolve and syntax was actually called Web Afternoon. Oh, I remember I Web Afternoon. I think we had those yep. in Atlanta. Yeah, it was started by Jay Cornelius um, at Nine Labs. Yeah. And I spoke to Jay and asked if I could do one in Charleston. And decided to kind of, again, riding on the coattails of something that was already established. And that was in October 2014. And it was a little bit irritating, you know, trying to put on the event, but always having to check in. How could we use the logo? How could we do this? How could we do that? And I mean, I understand that they have their brand and they're trying to manage it. And this was the first time it was going outside of Atlanta. Web Afternoon happened. And it was during that event that I realized that there was a disconnect. I had nine speakers. We were going through nine speakers over the course, over the course of five hours. Mm-hmm. And there was one speaker who was actually speaking on development. He spoke on the introduction to the Ionic framework for developing mobile apps. When he got up and he started speaking, I noticed the developers in the room sit up and start taking notes. And I saw some of the designers kind of slump down and kind of, you know, pull out their phone and start checking social media and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And that's when I realized, yeah, they're two different niches. Yeah. They need to be separated. So anyway, even at that time, I thought about that, but I didn't think about splitting everything off or make, making my own brand. After the event, thought, okay, we have some momentum going. Let's do this again. So I wanted to do it in March of 2015. Got in touch with Nine Labs, and they were hesitant to allow us to do it because they were going to do one in Atlanta at the same time. I didn't see what the big deal was. We were in Charleston. But I mentioned this to someone who was already doing events, and he told me something he had told me before. He said, this is why I told you before, roll with your own brand. Yeah. That's how Revolve came about. And so the first Revolve was held in October of 2015, and the goal for that one was first to at least have 50% of women. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're still thinking about trying to develop the brand. You're going through this. I don't know how you pay speakers. I don't know how, I don't know how you put together a lineup. And it was kind of, you know, just going through it, get, talking to different people, getting advice. But for me, what I thought is, if I'm going to bring someone as a speaker into town, I need to at least cover the, the cost of getting there and hotel. There's no show without talent. And if your talent can't get there, then you have a problem. So I didn't want to be able to promote Jane public and say that Jane is speaking on this 
And then at the last minute, Gene runs, in, runs into a financial problem and can't attend. Mm-hmm. Because then I have to answer to the attendee who might have bought a ticket because of Gene that, hey, Gene can't attend. So, uh, sorry. Yeah. And over time, that kind of developed. The following year, I did syntax. But what was really interesting with that is for syntax, which was is developer-based, I decided what I'd do is an open call for speakers. And I think I was oblivious to the lack of women speaking at developer conferences. And I was a bit spoiled by the availability of women for design and marketing. Hmm. So I put out this call for speakers and no woman submitted. Interesting. So, so I this was sp- like 2015, you said? That was 2015. 2015. Okay. And, I was, and I was putting on syntax in probably like a, just, just putting on the first one in about four months thinking, okay, let me just get this in. And as time goes, I'll improve it. But when no woman responded and I had a short timeline, I got into this awkward position where I had to keep reaching out to women and saying, hey, we're having this event and we'd like to have you as a speaker because you're a woman. That didn't go over very well. So after that first one, that's when I started thinking, okay, it's a lot easier to find women to speak for Revolve Design and Marketing but not for development. So what I had to do was make a concerted effort. And all along, I'm looking online, I'm seeing all these lineups. You see one woman, two women. You don't really see very many people of color. And I'm thinking, yeah, we got to fix this. At least we should do better. Mm -hmm. I couldn't not, not fix it. I need to do better. So for syntax, it takes a lot more effort, especially when you're doing a call for speakers. Because what I see is I don't see a lot of women applying to speak. I don't see a lot of people of color applying to speak. And there are a lot of reasons for that because they've just gotten used to applying, getting rejected, or probably speaking at an event, realizing they get put in the room in the corner while other people get... I mean, there's so many reasons. Mm -hmm. For syntax, we actually had to spend a lot more time looking for people of color and women and lining them up or getting in touch with them and securing them early, even before we put the call for speakers out. And what that did was it reduced the amount of available positions to speak, but at least I know, okay, I know who these, I know I have this group of speakers. Mm -hmm. I have room for more, but I know I'm providing an opportunity for more people of color and women to speak, and I know what their topics are. So we'll build the schedule around that. And that's how I started getting more participation for syntax. But Revolve, I didn't typically do a call for speakers because it's a different audience. Developers just want to talk code. Designers and people working on branding are a little bit more picky. Mm -hmm. You know, is the food right? Is the design consistent? What does the name badge look like? Is the lighting in the room good? It's such, I refer to Revolve as the prima donna audience. (laughs) And that isn't to say that for syntax, you know, we just give them anything. No, it's it's a matter of providing a standard. But with Revolve, I found that I had to, all year long, every time I attend an event, I'm vetting a speaker. Even though when I attend events, it's a lot easier for me because I don't have to think about organizing. I'm always vetting speakers. Mm. Let's put a pin in that right there because we met at a conference. We met at 2015, How Design Live here in Atlanta. So even like then during that, you were like thinking about speakers to have. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So I'm imagining like that that part of you kind of never turns off. You're kind of always on the lookout for people what gets me is when i sit in a session a lot of times i'm attending the session because the topic is interesting to me other times it's because i realize it's interesting to other people but i never thought about it if i'm in a session and i'm taking notes and i'm and i find it engaging that is a plus 
but mm-hmm. I'm also looking around the room to see the reaction of the people in the room. What are the expressions on their faces? Are they engaged? Are they on their phone? Or do they have their laptop and you look like they're checking email? Are they taking notes? I'm paying attention to all of that. I'm paying attention to the content the speaker's speaking about. And because I have experience in so many different lines of work, I can relate to a lot of the content. So I'm looking at you know the presentation ability of the speaker to connect with the audience. I'm looking at the style. I'm looking at everything and keeping notes. This speaker is good. I'll put some notes there because I'm not sure when I could put them on mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a matter of trying to put together a schedule or a program where the speakers and the topics complement each other. Yeah. I'm always looking on. Okay. We've had a few other guests on the show who also put on creative events. We've had Marshall Shorts, who does Creative Control Fest in Columbus. We've had Shaw Struthers, who does Hue Design Summit here in Atlanta. Antoinette Carroll, together with Tim Hikes, they do Design Plus Diversity in St. Louis. Saranya Bark does Codeland in New York. Uh So we've had a few people on the show that also kind of put together events. I feel like everyone has, in some shape or form, kind of talked about the same issues that you have when it relates to sort of putting an event together, which has been around funding, like finding sponsors, and then also with speakers, with finding good speakers. And for me, and I, I know I'm, I'm bringing this back to me, but because I'm the host, I guess, but I, famous, <laughs> I famously said like a year and a half ago that I stopped speaking at conferences. Like it was just, it was too much hassle to deal with conference organizers when it comes to even getting basic things like travel to the city where the event is in or a hotel room at the, you know, in the city where I'm supposed to be speaking at. There have been organizers that have argued me down over the fact that, you know, it should just be a privilege that I got asked to speak and I should just, well, why don't you ask your company to pay for it? It's usually kind of the first response that I get. Well, I've been getting that more lately because I work for Glitch, but people are like, well, why don't you just ask, why don't you just ask them to pay for it? I'm like, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I have a professional development budget, but I already spent half of it. But aside from that, if you're asking me to speak somewhere, like for a conference, I'm assuming at the very least you're offering transportation and hotel. Like if it's in another city, that's the very least that I'm expecting. Like I'm not necessarily asking for an honorarium, although if they do offer it, that's great. But just even travel to and from there, there are so many events I've had to pull out of just because the minute I asked about that, they completely changed their mind. Or they'll contact me and ask me, oh, well, we're looking for diverse people for this and this event. Would you like to speak? And I'm like, well, yeah, what about, you know, transportation and hotel? Oh, well, we're, you know, we're not offering that or we're not doing that. And these are big companies, Carl. These are not, you know, things that people are just kind of starting on their own. These are ad agencies. These are well-known software as a service services, which I won't name names, but it's astonishing how much I think they're just expecting this sort of free work for this kind of thing. And it makes me wonder if the people who are speaking at dozens of these types of events a year have to put up with that same thing. Like, I don't know if this is a unique thing that I'm getting because I'm a black male or if this is just how the industry works. That's not how the industry works. Okay. So I'm not crazy. All right. (laughs) And I say this, that's not how the industry works to a marginal extent. Okay. To do that kind of research, I've, performed different roles. I've volunteered at conferences. I've attended as just an attendee. I've spoken. And, you know, as I get to know people, I ask questions and I I learn a lot of different things. I I mean, for me, when I started putting it on, I just knew if I'm going to ask you to speak at a conference, it's one thing if you're you're local. Mm -hmm. It's another thing if you're regional. But if you're further out and you can't drive, that's a whole different ball game. So what we've done and i say we it's really myself and my sister who lives in new jersey she who's doing a lot of the writing who has nothing to do with design or marketing or development Hmm. but i just thought it's fair to treat everyone with respect 
and treat everyone equally. So, for example, and I think this is what anyone who is speaking should consider. There are different environments. So, for example, the WordPress community mm-hmm. is all volunteer-based. And I, I just I can't express how much I, I love that community. Yeah. So, if, so I know when I'm applying to speak at a WordPress event or a WordCamp, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to buy my own ticket. I'm going to pay my own hotel. Yeah. That's yeah. how it is. Well, I think, and honestly, that's how the camp style of conferences are. And that's something I don't think a lot of folks who maybe have started speaking after 2010, perhaps, even know about, that there were several types of camps. I mean, you mentioned word camp, you mentioned bar camp. I've been to a few pod camps. There's been lots of different of these camp style conferences that sort of like sprung up sometime in, I want to say like the mid to early 2000s or so. But that's just how the format of those events are. They've always been kind of this volunteer, the employees, the employees, the attendees kind of run the event in a way. And you can see that because they're charging probably a max of $20. Yeah, if anything, sometimes. Because they're trying to make it as easy as possible for everyone to attend. Okay. Now, when we step away from that, what I look at is, so for developer events, what I realize is most developers pay their own way to go to another city to speak, which I thought was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you could pay your own way, that's great. The conference should be planned in such a way to try to cover those costs. Now, it's not easy, and it takes a while to figure out the model. Mm -hmm. And it took me, I would say, probably about three events to figure out how to make the event sustainable without sponsorship support. That means you're losing money while you're figuring it out, and that's part of the reason why a lot of conferences don't last. It's an incredibly risky endeavor, there's so many ways to lose money. And a lot of the people who are in charge of watching the money aren't really watching the money because they know they're not the ones who has to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. But for anyone looking to speak at a conference, if it's not the volunteer, the volunteer com- slash community-driven aspect, you should be at least expecting to be compensated for your travel and your accommodation. Amen. Now, now, depending on the budget of how the budget is set up and every conference is different, the conference organizing team might not be able to cover the cost of you staying there for the whole event. So in some cases they may fly you in, you get one night and then they fly you back up or mm-hmm. they, you know, they probably give you some compensation for fuel or whatever. And with some events, then now uh, there's a speaker fee is available. Mm -hmm. But what we've tried to do is if I'm going to pay you, Maurice Sherry, a certain speaker fee, I should be paying a woman the same fee Mm -hmm. and I should be paying a person of a different race the same fee. Yeah. Because you're all speaking, you're all doing sessions. Mm -hmm. If you're doing keynotes, everyone should be equal. Now, keep in mind That is, again, to a marginal extent because you're also looking at, once you get above the session level, you start looking at the marketability of that speaker. Right. Can they bring in, can they put butts in the seats, basically? Exactly. So, you know, for for that speaker in particular, you might have to go a little bit above and beyond. And you should. I think you should. I think that should be expected. But you sh- you shouldn't have, and, and this is how, just, just the way we do it, I am not going to invite you to speak and ask you to cover your course. No. The situation has come, come up in the past where a speaker has told me, listen, my company is willing to pay for it. Okay, pay for your travel or pay for your accommodation. What we do is we make that a sponsorship. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Because then now that company now is basically helping us with the course of putting on the event. Right, right. And having the speakers as part of that. Exactly. So but by far and large, once you get over that community-based event, you sh- everyone, 
at least your traveling accommodation should be covered. Yeah. Now, not every speaker might be able to get paid because the budget might not have it. So if you are getting onto a schedule late in the game, that budget might already have been exhausted. I just know for me, I've figured out what that ideal number is by now. So if you're getting onto the schedule, we're taking that into consideration. Yeah. I've often discovered sometimes that uh, conferences will reach out to me when they're at like the end of their budget or like at the tail end of it. And it's always when they also need to have diversity. It's like, oh, we're looking for more diverse things. And then I'll ask about what payment is for transportation and lodging. They're like, oh, well, you know, we're kind of at the end of our budget. It's like, well, why didn't you factor that into the budget from the beginning instead of trying to add it on like, you know, like a toothbrush or something at Amazon just so you'll have to get free shipping. You know what I mean? Like, don't treat the diversity part of it as a as an add on. Yeah, that's not cool. And if you're at, and if you're an event organizer, and I'm seeing this now from being in a position that they've put on multiple events over multiple years and figuring out how to do it without a lot of sponsorship, that when they're doing that, that's not good enough. I don't care who you are. That is not good enough. And I'm glad I could see that now because we figured out how to do it without much sponsorship. Not saying that we don't need sponsors, (laughs) but... (laughs) But that's not good enough. So if we've gotten to the end of our budget, you know what we're doing? We're going to figure out how to shuffle that schedule around. We're going to probably increase the break times. We're going to figure out how to provide ways for the attendees to interact and improve their experience without them realizing that, you know, we can't fill a speaker slot because of budget. Yeah, there's so much that goes into conferences that I think from the speaker end, and even from the attendee end, I think we just don't realize. Like, I, I went to XOXO Fest this year. It's the first time that I was able to attend. And that conference was different from any other conference I've been to in a lot of different ways. Uh, first I of, that. Yeah, first of all, they they scheduled in social time. Like, on Friday, half of the day was just, like, get out there and, like, talk to attendees. And you could do it if you wanted to or not. They mostly had sessions and things at night. So that way you could like spend the day either socializing or seeing the city or just sleeping in and then come through at night and then, you know, go to the sessions and things like that. And they sort of made it so it was very uh, collaborative and easy to to talk to people. A lot of the back channel stuff wasn't really even a back channel. It was kind of up front and center because a lot of it was driven by the Slack community for the oh. event. That's the first time I've ever seen that where the Slack community had such an active hand in not only shaping the event as it happened, but also oh. with shaping social interaction, you know, putting people together that may not have even had a chance to talk to one another in any kind of way because maybe it's more comfortable to do it with Slack than it is to do it in person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really that's something I would like to see more events do. Uh, especially, I think, as events try to take into account different kinds of attendees with accessibility and diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion. That was the first kind of event I had been to where it was like, oh, wow, they're really trying to make this open for everyone. Now, granted, it's, I mean, it's Portland. XOXO is still a very, I don't want to say it's a very white conference because they did have a good bit of diversity there in the attendees and the speakers. But also, it's like you kind of know what you're going into in terms of the city. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's a half of six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, it's it just kind of is what it is. But that Slack portion of it, I thought, was something I'd like to see more conferences adopt. Because they had like this live back channel where people were basically giving updates on the fly. Like, oh, this is broken over here. Oh, this is right. happening over here. And things were changing like in a matter of hours as the event was still going on, it was almost like, I don't know. They were sort of like live coding the event in a way. Like it was really interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen that. I'd, I'd like to attend and see that. I know we have Slack channels for our events, but we haven't really used them. The plan is to use that more and move away from the event app kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because people are using Slack already. People are using social media. So 
I think Slack would be the best way to keep to communicate. But for the people who aren't using Slack, your social media. Yeah. One of the things we we do is that we don't deliberately schedule social time. What we try to do is sub quietly introduce it into some of the sessions. Because a lot of people attending these conferences, a lot of people attending working in these industries are actually introverts. Mm-hmm. And when they see that they're going to be forced to network in some way, they'll people will tense up. Yeah. yeah and they, they try to avoid going to that session or something like that. So in most cases that revolve, we're usually doing table rounds. So we're encouraging you all the time to sit with someone you don't know. Some of the sessions, I'll know before that it's going to be interactive. You're sitting on this table, you're going to have to interact with someone on the table, or you're going to have to get up and go to another table and interact. And it's just interesting seeing how connections develop from there. People, people who might be looking for jobs, find jobs. Companies start. People get work out of it. I mean, it, it's just interesting seeing how the connections evolve from yeah. the events. I think that's one thing that's that we definitely do. You, we, we'll try to avoid putting social time yeah. on it, but we, we're, we're conscious, consciously trying to weave that in and not let you know that that's going to happen. What advice would you give someone that wants to follow in the footsteps of what you're doing? They want to build community where they are, or they want to try to put on an event where they are and they, you know, they may or may not be in a big city. They may be in another country or something like that. Like what kind of advice would you give for someone that wants to build a community like what you're doing where they are? Speak to some, first of all, speak to someone who's been doing it mm-hmm. and try to learn from their mistakes. So you don't make it too, because the mistakes are usually expensive. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> but apart from that, what I've realized is the most successful conferences, those that have existed for six, seven, eight years, they have an active community. Okay. There's also the other aspect where that conference might have a lot of sponsorship, but the, the, the most successful conferences have figured out a way to stay in front of their audience, their community, and keep that in, that community engaged all year long. So it's not just like the problem we're having now where it's, hey, it's time to buy tickets. This is what's happening. And then after the conference, silence. That's why, you know, I always thought, you know, and I'm, I'm putting it out there, revision path, conference. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It may happen in the future. It may happen. I can't. The the only thing is with with a revision path conference is like, I don't know. We did one event back in 2017 with Facebook. It was a Facebook live event and they controlled the guest list. They controlled the speakers and everything. They had control over everything. All I kind of did was just show up. Um, I think I had to like help scout the venue because I didn't want it to be in a traditional tech space here. I wanted to be somewhere that would, one, kind of take people out of their comfort zone a little bit, and two, also introduce them to maybe a community that they don't know anything about. So we actually had the event a little bit south of 20, near downtown, near the the new uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And it was a good turnout. We had about 75 people. It was great. But sort of like you were saying, people were asking, when's the next one? When's the next one? I'm like, I don't know. And now it's been a year. So... And, um, and the sad part about that is if it's done that way, you're not actually putting on the event. Right. So because, for example, you know your community. Mm-hmm. You know what works, you know what doesn't work. Now, you, if, even if you don't have as much experience putting on an event, you still know your community. So having another person come in and tell you how it's going to run, they're putting on their event. Yeah. And I told them as I told them as much. I said basically this is a Facebook event. They're like, "No, no, it's a Revision Path event." I'm like, "Y'all are paying. Y'all are bringing in catering. Like they had nice food. Like they had like nice food too. Like not cheese and crackers. They had like shrimp." So wow. like Exactly. So we 
<laughs> so I was like, this is a Facebook event that also has uh, Revision Pass name attached to it. Like, let's be serious. They want to do more events. We might have some stuff coming up together in 2019, but I've told them like it's it's a Facebook event. Like it's not a revision path. Revision path the podcast has an, has enough, I think, of a challenge with just maintaining sponsors for the show. And then I'm thinking if we branch it to an event, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm cautious. But that brings up another aspect, uh, another point to make. You know, going back to the question of what kind of advice. One, I would say. Speak to not just one, but a couple of people who've put on events. Now, some people don't really want to share information. Mm-hmm. There, but there are a lot who are willing to share. I'm very grateful for that because I've learned a lot from a lot of people and I've avoided a lot of mistakes. And I'm happy to share with anyone. Two, figure out the community. If you, I still haven't figured out the community. And I'm you know, still thinking about ways to, to build that community and help those connections that are made at the event grow or facilitate it. But the other aspect is figure out sponsorship, figure out partnerships, because there's so much more that we could do if we had support. And it's on putting on a tech inclusion event or tech inclusion events in South Carolina, because Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, for syntax, we've only had one company ever from South Carolina ever sponsor syntax. That was Paul. Everything. No, no. For, uh, for syntax, the only company local was Jack Russell Software. Okay. Everything else uh, this year, you know, we got a lot of we got some national sponsorship and help, but never a local company. Never more than one. Mm-hmm. For Evolve, we've never had a local company or a company based in South Carolina ever to help. Wow. Palmer's, the first year we had MailChimp support mm-hmm. for Evolve, but Palmer's has jumped in and supported every year yeah. because they're, they're sold on what we're doing or what we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say, well, they don't get it. Why is Palmer's sponsoring your event well they they sell their products to people yeah and people attend the conference mm. <laughs> <laughs> so i think if we have i'm curious do they put cocoa butter in the in the tote bags dude this, <laughs> <laughs> now that's my kind of conference i can i can deal well, with that i could <laughs> so, <laughs> so so for evolve when we give you a swag bag there is no printed material in it. Okay. If we give you the printed material, we give it to you in your hat with your brochure and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The bag is filled with Palmer's products. And because we're hosting it in Charleston, we try to give you a taste of Charleston. Oh, that's nice. So you'd probably get a sample of a local coffee brand. Benny wafers, um, a lot of things that are typical of the South, or at least this region. Yeah. So our goal is come to the conference. We'll we'll give you a taste of the South. When I spoke at Hopscotch Design Festival a few years ago, that was one thing that they did. They gave like a like a little like a care package of some sort with like things that are all from Raleigh, like. Right. They had a little thing of like pimento cheese and like some other stuff. I was like, "Oh, this is this is really neat." And plus, it was a snack for the hotel. I was like, "Hey, that's that's even better." And, and we put snacks, we put snacks in the bags too, because um, you know during the day you might get a little bit peckish. There's yeah. something for you to snack on. There, there are a couple of things, and it's cheaper to do that than to pay the venue for every little thing mm-hmm. because they're gonna they're gonna nickel and dime you as much as they can. Or leave it to attendees to kind of fend for themselves. Yeah. Like one issue that was with XOXO is that it was sort of situated a good bit of ways. Like it was over the bridge from the city and the Mm. neighborhood that we were in didn't really have a lot of places where people could go and eat. But yet at the same time, they were saying, don't take Lyft, don't take Uber, take a, a like local cab or something. It's like, but you have to take that to get into the city to go to get something to eat and then come back. 
to the venue. Uh, so it's kind of weird that way. And, and when you're talking about prices for tickets, what we factor into the price of the ticket is food. Mm. We want you to build those connections. So we're, we're, we provide lunch at every event. Nice. Because we, we want you to not have to think about where you're going to eat. There's mm-hmm. food provided and good food. So you can stay there and keep those connections going. Yeah. We so sponsored, that's one thing. To, yeah, we sponsored lunch. We sponsored lunch at this year's uh, Hue Design Summit because I wanted to yeah. attend, but I was I was in I was in Philly for another conference. But I was like, at least we can do is like get y'all something to eat. So, and I think this this was the first year I heard about Hue. Is this was this the second year? Yeah, it was the second year for it. Yeah, so um, that's one something I want to check out next year because um, if there's anything I could do, I mean we're still trying to figure th- things out. But if there's anything I could do to help, that would be good. But what? It's just really nice for me to be able to attend an event and not have to organize it. I just want to show, <laughs> I just want to show up, sit down, enjoy the content, meet people, and just not even think about what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, where do you? It's see amazing your... how much I enjoy that now. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to be doing? Probably in Europe, hanging out. Okay, relaxing. I didn't think I'd be in the U.S. that long or this long. I should see. <laughs> but you know, kind of started this thing and it's evolved. I kind of want to see it through. I don't know. It's hard to see because if you asked me that question five years ago, I'd have told you I was going to be in the south of France. I was going to ask, like, who do you think you would have been if you would have went back to Trinidad? Like, if you would have went back there after after school, who would you have been? Would you have done all this? No, I'd have probably been running some type of business because I had two businesses before i came to the u.s okay i was just at work one evening and got a call from the coach saying you know he's gonna give me a scholarship to come play soccer and i was like yeah let's do this (laughs) so it's hard to say because five years ago if you asked me if i if i would put on a conference i would say hell no no way i can't no but it just evolved i don't know the south of france is calling yes sir it is um (laughs) (laughs) and um every other year i've tried to make my um take my trips deeper and deeper into or further and further east yeah into europe to explore and um i think as humans we're always fascinated with what we don't have so I'm trying to get over to Europe. Europeans are trying to get over to America. Some of the Americans are trying to get down to the Caribbean where I'm from. We always we always want what we don't have. Yeah. Well, Carl, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? For Revolve Conference, there's information at Revolve conference.com that's r-e-v-o-l-v-e conference.com and for syntax it's syntaxconference.com for me they can find me on twitter at at k8k hudson phillips and otherwise i'm really not so much on social media i'm i'm there through the brands of the events gotcha all right Well, Carl Hudson Phillips, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, like I said earlier, you and I first met a few years ago back at How Design Live in Atlanta, and I really got to learn more about you and about your work, and we've kept in touch, of course, since then. But I think it's important to be able to show, you know, the importance of building community and sustaining that community through these types of events. I think, you know, so often the things that we do as designers can be a bit disconnected from community, especially depending on where we fall within the spectrum of diversity. So seeing that you were, you know, able to come to this country, got an education, stayed here, built community, have built this this great community around all of, of this is really, I think, inspiring for anyone to see that they can do it as well. And I mean it's I think it's just a testament to your your hard work and to your your work ethic in general that you're able to kind of pull all this off 
year after year and really, really help enrich the community. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I just want to see this. It hasn't been easy and it's still not easy, but it, it could be done. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Carl Hudson Phillips and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Carl and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People all around the world use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about. And their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by just bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.